0: It's parshas Shoftim, and our parsha is loaded with mitzvos—42 mitzvahs to be precise. But if you examine the parsha and you study the mitzvos, it's almost completely non-relevant to us. Almost all of the mitzvos featured in our parsha are ones that most of us, at least, cannot fulfill. So, for example, there's a mitzvah to establish a court system. We can't do that today. We don't have a Jewish court system. Not to plant a tree near Temple Mount. We don't have a temple. We don't have access to Temple Mount. To not erect an altar. To not offer a blemished animal a sacrifice. Two mitzvahs to adhere to the Sanhedrin. Six mitzvahs pertaining to a Jewish king. Not to permanently move to Egypt. Two mitzvahs related to Levite portions. Four mitzvahs related to gifts of the Cohen. Six mitzvahs related to necromancy, seances, sorcery, clairvoyant, fortune-telling. Four mitzvahs related to real and false prophets. Again, these are things that are not relevant to us. A mitzvah to designate cities of refuge. And then there are two mitzvahs that are relevant to us. There are laws related to monetary damages and the prohibition against encroaching on someone else's property. And then we go back to mitzvahs that are not relevant to us. Mitzvahs related to a Jewish court, mitzvahs about war conduct and the wars of conquest of Canaan, and finally, two mitzvahs related to finding a corpse between two cities. The absolute overwhelming majority of the content of our parsha is not relevant to us. They are themes that are pertinent in the times of the temple, when we have teens, when we have a Torah army, when we had prophets, when we had a Sanhedrin. But they're not relevant to us today. Well, maybe we should take a week off. It's August after all. Maybe we should just mail it in. But of course, we don't do that on the Parsha podcast. We're going to try to find some deep and powerful lessons that can change our lives. And we're going to find it in the very first Verse of the Parsha. Besides, I have an incredible treat for you at the end, at the A&Q. Even if you skip the A&Q each week, does anyone do that? I don't know. But even if you do, this week's A&Q answer, the answer to last week's question is a delight. It's so joyous. I mentioned last week it took tremendous restraint to not reveal the answer last week. So let's begin. The first verse of our Parsha tells us that we must establish courts and judges and bailiffs throughout the land shoftim vishotrim titen lecha you should establish you should appoint shoftim which is judges Vishotrim, enforcers bailiffs bechol sharecha throughout all your gates and all your tribes and they should judge the nation mishpat tzedek righteous judgment there are going to be disputes there are going to be conflicts and we need an impartial third party, a righteous judicial system to resolve and adjudicate these disputes. And therefore, we must establish courts in every gate, in every city, and in every tribe. Now, why do we need judges and bailiffs? Why can we suffice with judges alone and everyone will follow their rulings? So Rashi tells us, first Rashi parsha. Shoftim, judges, well, they are there to render the judgment. Vishotrim and the bailiffs, they are there to admonish the nation to follow the command and the ruling of the judge. And they should strike them with a stick and hit them with a whip until they accept the ruling of the judge. Rashi is telling us that the judges need an enforcement arm. What are you going to do if the losing party of a dispute in court refuses to accept the ruling of the judge? You have to have a bailiff. You have to have some muscles of the law to enforce the ruling. Now, if you examine this system, you have both judges and bailiffs, and it's interesting that both of them are working in unison, in tandem. They both agree as to what to do. Both agree to follow the ruling of the judge. But they operate on very different planes. A judge, well, the judge has to use logic. And he has to use the corpus of law. And he has to use reason. And he has to use evidence and legal precedent to reach the verdict. A judge evaluates the case A judge studies the merits of the arguments. A judge assesses the evidence and you cross examine the witness and you pour over the legal texts until you find the resolution. That is the mode that a judge operates on. But the bailiff, the enforcer, well, he has an entirely different set of responsibilities. The bailiffs don't look at the evidence. They're not examining the ins and outs of the case. They're not studying the legal text or the legal precedent. They don't examine the witnesses. They don't study the merits of the argument. They don't use reason or logic to decide which side is correct and which side is in the wrong. They have a simple rule. They listen to the conclusion of the judge and then they use force to implement the judge's decision. Reason Understanding, logic, precedent, none of that matters to the bailiff. He is the enforcer of the will, of the ruling, of the verdict of the judge. Now, our parsha tells us that both of these offices are needed in order to have law and order in the society, in order to have justice in the land. And therefore, the Torah instructs us, place, shoftim vishotrim, judges, and bailiffs in a land to collectively, both of them, judge the nation with righteous justice. We need both. We need the judge to give us the reason for the verdict, the logical reason for the verdict. And we need the bailiff to enforce it, even if the defendant and the litigants are resistant, are recalcitrant to the ruling. The bailiff comes and forces Compliance. And here is the idea that we will suggest on today's special edition of the Parsha podcast and the kernel of this idea I saw in the Svas Emmas. It seems that this model is not only useful for a courtroom, for the judicial system. This is a framework that is critical and indispensable for our own lives. Let's explain Why do we need the enforcement arm of the law? Why do we need the bailiffs? After all, if the judge rules that you're guilty, that you have to pay, that you have to relinquish property, that you have to be punished, that you are in the wrong, wouldn't everyone just obey? The judges, after all, Wise and learned and experienced. The judge has credentials. The judge has a good reputation. He has credibility. And the judge rendered a ruling based upon a rigorous examination of the merits of the case. And it happens to be that you lost this one. Okay, you get them next time. Why do we need the enforcement arm? Why do we need to have the other office, show trim the bailiffs, wouldn't everyone just accept the ruling, the verdict, unquestioningly? Of course not. Here is the dirty secret. We are not solely rational, logical beings. We often act quite irrationally. We are biased. We are swayed by all kinds of other factors aside from pure reason. In fact, we are designed to have a very hard time seeing when we ourselves are wrong. Humans are also preternaturally lazy. Our instinct is always to choose the option that requires us to do the least amount of work and to change our status quo the least. Man is made out of dust. Just as earth is very sedentary, we are too. We want to stay where we are. And being moved, changing, that is very difficult. And we rebel. And we convince ourselves that we are correct. And the judge says, you're wrong. And we say, no, he's wrong. I'm right. These biases run very deep. Moreover, we are by nature a rebellious species. There's an amazing Rashi. If I told you this Rashi and you didn't see it, you would say, Rabbi, I don't trust you. That sounds too crazy. Chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, verse 6, 6, 6. This is the third to last verse of Parashas Barathees, the first parash in the Torah. The verse says that the Almighty was consoled that he had made man on earth. This is when humanity starts to devolve. And this is the run-up to the flood and to the deluge. And of course, to the story of Noah and the... Ark of Noah, people start sinning, and the Almighty is consoled, so to speak, that he made man on earth. Says Rashi, what does that mean? The Almighty was consoled that he made man on earth and not in heaven. Man is here on earth. God is consoled, so to speak, tells us Rashi, that he made man here and not in heaven For had man been created in heaven, man would have gotten all the angels to rebel against God. This incredible Rashi is telling us that man is rebellious by nature. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't operate solely logically. Our rebellious tendencies are so ingrained that we would get the lofty beings to be rebellious too had we been created in the heavens above. Even if we were created in the angelic realm, we are inherently resistant to authority. We are incredibly rebellious. So the bottom line of all of this is that quite often we do not operate as cold, logical, crystal clear thinkers we don't operate with pure reason and that's why the court needs a bailiff sometimes the logic of the judge will not move the guilty party to act on their own you need to bludgeon the guilty party to compliance There is a catch-all term, a catch-all name for all these factors that cause us to act this way. We call that the Yitzhara. Within man, there is a massive world war happening. We have the soul, and the seat of the soul within man is the intellect. And then there is all kinds of resistance in place. To fight against the intellect, the biases, the bad character, the inflexibility, the inability to change or at least the great difficulty to change, the great difficulty to admit our own flaws and faults, our inherent laziness, our rebelliousness, that is all the product of the Yitzhara. And that's the war. We have the intellect trying to operate and we have all these things within us that are forcing us to rebel against that intellect. And thus, in our Parsha, we see a wonderful model of how to achieve self-perfection, of how to achieve ethical refinement, of how to ensure that the will of the intellect, of the judge, of the soul, is implemented. It's not just the courts that need a two-mode system, the judge and the bailiff. In any pursuit that we want to undertake, we also need a mode of judge and a mode of bailiff to triumph. There are times when we are thinking clearly. We're firing on all cylinders. We're excited. We're motivated. We want to accomplish. We want to conquer. We want to undertake great challenges. We want to make something of ourselves. We want to imbue our life with meaning. In those instances, it's the judge, it's the intellect, it's the soul who is in charge. This is the force of reason and logic operating. This is the force that says, What am I doing with my life? What am I doing with the opportunities that I gave me? And this is the force that makes a decision of where to direct your focus and energy and time and resources. That's the judge that we all have within us. And with the judge in charge, we can have a dream, a mission, a goal, a great project, a great undertaking. But we must always remember that the judge is not the only entity with sway. You have a around within you, after all. You may get moody. You might want to take some time off. You might get distracted. You'll feel lazy. You'll start to rebel. You feel an urge to give up. You want to throw up your arms and declare, this is too hard for me. My judge wants me to change, and that's just way too painful. I can't handle it. It's too difficult. I hate that judge. What a monster. How can he force me to do that? The sad reality is that all too often, the most logically thought out and carefully laid out plans of the judge are torpedoed. And the reason why is that a person failed to hire a bailiff, failed to set up an enforcement mechanism where the decisions of the judge will batter through any resistance. The only way to succeed in any pursuit is if you are aware of the challenges and the obstacles line before you you have to be aware that you have a hara. you have a force within you that is resistant to all your plans and you have to develop this sort of framework to avoid those pitfalls you need a two mode system you need a judge who thinks clearly and operates on cerebral reason thought out assess the situation examine the evidence Study the subject at hand and render a clear and convincing and cogent verdict. That's the intellect. That's the soul. But in addition, you have to have a way to force yourself to do it for the times that you are recalcitrant. We have to develop systems to deal with ourselves when we're not acting logically and rationally. We have to have a bailiff. We have to have a way to enforce that the will of the judge will be implemented even when facing great resistance. I want to give you three examples of this idea. A marriage. How do you make sure that a marriage endures? Again, any great pursuit. You have to have the judge and the bailiff. The judge operates an intellect. A judge would say, "Let's think about it. Should I marry this person or not? Does it make sense? Is this a person that I like? Is this a person that I'm attracted to? Is this a person that I can see myself spending the rest of my life with, through good times and bad? Do we share values? Do we share priorities? Do we want the same thing out of life? Does this person have good character?" These are the questions of the judge thinking about the question logically. But there has to be a bailiff too. The plans need an enforcement mechanism as well. Because remember, the Yetzirah is always there crouching, ready to torpedo whatever the judge comes up with. There are going to be times... In your marriage, when the Yetzirah gets involved and you stop thinking logically and you get lazy and you get wishy-washy and you say that to change, which is a necessary and perhaps the critical ingredient of any harmonious marriage. Well, that's too hard. I prefer the status quo. There needs to be a force that keeps you in check when your mind and your reason and your intellect are just not in full effect. We call that a tzuba, a marital document, a marital agreement that, in the words of the Talmud, makes it very hard to get a divorce. This is why I believe that a prenup is often a bad idea if the goal is to preserve the marriage, because that is Weakening the bailiff. Example number one. Example number two, suppose, just imagine in your head, this is totally theoretical. Just humor me. Imagine that someone wants to do a weekly partial podcast. The judge, the internal judge that you may have. Well, the judge says that's a great idea. Just imagine you get to start the weekly partial with great intensity every week and you could discover insights and wisdom and you could share it with an audience from all over the world. What an amazing idea. This sounds like so much fun. What a blast. But what happens when it's August and it's hot and you're traveling and you don't really know what to say on the podcast? and it's hard to find a quiet place to record, and you're cranky, and you're lazy, and you're grumpy. What now? You have to have a bailiff. If you want to do a weekly partial podcast, you would have to develop a mechanism to force yourself to do it, even when it's hard even when you're rebellious, even when you're lazy, even when you're not in the mood. That will be my totally speculative advice for someone who wants to do a Parsha podcast each week. Follow the model of Shoftim Vishotrim. Second example. And here's the third example. And I left the best for last. And we're going to go to a controversial subject. And I know that I'm walking on a landmine. But doesn't that make it more dangerous and more interesting? So let's go. And I know, fully aware ahead of time, that I'm probably going to get some hate mail for this. It's okay. It's an analogy. But send your hate mail to rabbywolby at gmail.com. So here's the third example. Vaccine persuasion. Suppose, again, totally theoretical, suppose that you were the government, number one. And suppose that you were convinced that vaccines are safe and effective. And suppose that you are under the impression that the only way to end a global pandemic is if you get a very large percentage of the population vaccinated. And suppose there is a segment of the population that doesn't agree with that. Again, totally theoretical, not relevant to anything we're talking about today in the news, just a thought experiment. What would you do if you were the government and you were convinced that vaccines are safe and effective and you were convinced that the only way to end the pandemic is if everyone or almost everyone gets vaccinated and you have a problem? Because part of the population is resistant, is recalcitrant. Well, I would suggest that the government adopt this model, and maybe that's what they're doing, or what they would be doing if there was a global pandemic. Of course, this is all theoretical. You would adopt the two-tiered model of judges and bailiffs. You would have a judge. The judge, of course, symbolizes Logic. Logically, you would try to convince people to the merits of getting vaccinated. You would tout the effectiveness of the vaccine. Perhaps you would display graphs and studies and you would have doctors try to deliver PSAs to get people to listen. That is approaching the problem logically as a judgment. But of course going to face resistance you're going to have people who don't want to listen to the logic and in that event you would have to hire a bailiff you'd have to find a way to force people who are not going to be swayed by your logic again this is all supposing that logic is on your side this is a thought experiment after all you know this is a very hot button issue and i don't want to get myself caught in the crossfires we're just trying to say an idea What would you do? People are not moved by logic. Well, then you would find a way to force compliance. You would do things like a vaccine passport. You can't fly. You can't get onto an airplane. You can't enter a mall. You can't go into a restaurant. You can't go to a sporting event unless you're vaccinated. Twisting the arm, so to speak, of the people who don't listen to the logic. Again, supposing there is logic. They don't want to listen to that. Get them to do it nonetheless. So I knew that was controversial. And again, I don't profess to be a physician or an immunologist of any kind. But that's another example of this. And that shows really how broad this principle is. Every pursuit of greatness, every pursuit of great accomplishment, every... Undertaking must have both of these forces in play. Every successful venture, every great accomplishment, every peak of human achievement must all be guided by this two-tiered system. Of course, our parsha is talking about the court system. But our sages tell us that this is true in every area of our lives. We must place judges and bailiffs in all our gates, in the gateways of great pursuits. We must have both a judge and a bailiff in order for that venture to succeed and shine and flourish. So, did we learn something from a parsha that has so few practical mitzvos? Of course we did. We didn't even have to leave the very first verse, and we learned that whatever it is you want to accomplish, you need to be aware of the different challenges facing you. You have to know that the state that you are in when you are in planning mode, when your mind and your intellect and reason and logic is in full control, when the judge is operating and working effectively, that is not always going to be your state. You have a Yetzirah, and you must plan accordingly. Okay, let's get to this week's A and Q answers and questions. And the question is as follows. In our parsha, we read about a very important mitzvah. It's so important that you must actually endanger your life To fulfill it. Wow. This must be a very important mitzvah. It's a mitzvah that you even have to endanger your life to fulfill it. What mitzvah is that? It's a mitzvah of going to war. Most mitzvahs, you're not required to endanger your life to fulfill. But this mitzvah, going to war, well, by definition, that means that you must be willing to die for this mitzvah. Now, if you examine what happens in the soldier selection process, you discover something very strange. Who is conscripted and who is exempt? The verse tells us that if someone built a house recently, or someone planted a vineyard recently, or someone got betrothed recently, or if someone is just scared, they're off the hook. They have an exemption. They don't need to go to war. Could you imagine trying to sell this to the Vietnam draft board? Oh, I planted a vineyard. Can I be excused from going to war? Can I be exempted? The Torah's conscription methods sound a lot more like jury duty than war. And here's the question. How could it be that going to war is simultaneously so critical, so important, so vital, so necessary that you even need to potentially forfeit your life to fulfill it? It's that important. And yet, it has an exemption criteria so porous that basically anyone who wants to avoid it can get out of it. That's the question. Send me an email, RabbiWolby at jimmon.com with your answers. Okay, last week we asked an interesting question, in my opinion. And the question is, why specifically with respect to the mitzvah of charity, of tithing, of doing charity properly, giving 10%, why is that guaranteed to yield the reward in a way that you can even test it? In all other areas of life, God says, you do a mitzvah, I'll do good to you, I'll give you prosperity, I'll give you security, I'll give you stability. But you're not allowed to test God. You can't say, I'm going to do this mitzvah, and let's see if God delivers. But here, you're allowed to say, I'm going to give charity, I'm going to give 10%, I'm going to give tzedakah 10%, I'm going to tithe, and I'm testing God. Make me rich. Show me the money. I said last week that I have an astonishing answer for you, but I encouraged the audience to still try to come up with something on your own. Of course, yet again, the Parsha podcast family did not disappoint. I want to share an answer that I heard from two of my friends, Noah and Joel, and they said something which I found to be very profound. They said that wealth is not necessarily monetary. could also be a feeling of satisfaction. When someone gives charity, even though ostensibly they're losing money, they feel connected to a mission. They feel connected to a higher purpose. And that feeling of meaning is one that can easily be described as wealth. And then they suggested that there's no one who gives genuine, legitimate staka who goes on to regret it. There's something real and testably material about the satisfaction and enjoyment of a contribution. And that's why this is different. Because here in the mitzvah itself comes the reward of wealth, but not monetary wealth per se, rather the wealth of great satisfaction. I think there's something true to that. In my nine years at Torch, almost 10 years, wow. In my almost 10 years at Torch, I've never had a single person who told me that they regretted their donation. So obviously there's something there. You give money. You have less money, but you feel good about it. So that's a idea I want to share from our friends Noah and Joel. But here's the answer that I heard from my brother-in-law based upon something that he saw in the writings of Rabbi Moshe Wolfson. And the way we're going to frame it is as follows we can ask the question the other way around. Our question was, why by charity, by tithing, why can you test God here when you can't test God in other places? We could flip the question on its head. We could reverse the question. Why by all other mitzvahs can you not test God? After all, God makes a promise. Of course he's going to keep his promise. So why can't you test God? In every case, now our question was why tithing is different, but the question again can be reversed. Tithing is the one that makes sense. You should be able to test God in every one of his promises. So, for example, like a few weeks ago, we had Parsha's Ekev. Parsha's of starts with a promise. If you do the mitzvos, you'll have all these amazing things. You'll have prosperity and longevity and stability and security. Let us be able to test God in every one of his promises. So I think in our answer, we're going to discover the answer to both questions. Why, in most cases, we cannot test God, and why with tzedakah, why with charity, when done perfectly, giving that percent, you can indeed test God. Here we go. We know that Hebrew, or the way it's called, Lashon kodesh, the holy language— is not like any other language. Any other language, I don't know, Latin or or German or Mandarin or English, most languages are a way of verbal communication by mutual agreement. So if I agree and you agree and everyone agrees that there's something called a fax machine, it's called a fax machine, those words we just agree refer to the box that you send a fax through. We're just agreeing that that's the assigned name for the fax machine. And for every other word, clock and table and cup and cell phone and microphone, these are just words by mutual agreement. However, in Hebrew, the word is essential to the essence of the thing. The word is descriptive of the essence of the thing that it is describing. So the easiest example to explain this is that the Hebrew word for word and the Hebrew word for thing is the same word, davar, because the name is the thing. So beginning Genesis, Adam was able to name the animals. It wasn't just that he said, oh, this looks like a fox. This big thing I'm going to call an elephant. This small little thing I'm going to call a mouse. This thing with the horn is the rhinoceros. That's not what Adam did. Adam understood the essence of all the animals, and he was able to capture that with the name. Because again, Hebrew is not like any other language. And therefore, there are all kinds of layers and secrets in the words and the letters of Hebrew words. So for example, we've talked about this briefly in the past. There's the concept of gematria. Every letter in Hebrew is assigned a number. And thus, when you have two words, and they're different words, but they share the same numerical value, if you add up the values of each of their letters, well, those two words were told in Hebrew on this advanced level of language, they are actually related. And then there's a similar concept, perhaps you've heard of it, of At-bash. Have you heard of that? At-bash. What this is, briefly, is that the Hebrew language, the Hebrew alphabet, is 22 letters. And we can divide the alphabet into two groups, the first 11 and the last 11. And we're told Kabbalistically that the first 11... That refers to kindness, to mercy, to benevolence. And the last 11 refers to judgment. It's a more harsh treatment. Now, the last letter of the first 11 letters is letter Kaf. And the first letter of the last 11 is Alamed. And the word that those two letters spell is call, which means everything because they are the, so to speak, the the bridge between the first 11 and the last 11 and that really incorporates, that encompasses everything. But that's the concept of At-Bash. You swap the first 11 letters with their counterparts in the final 11 letters. So the word At is an Aleph, which is the first letter, and a Taf, which is the last letter. And in this system of At-Bash, the Aleph and the Taf are swapped. So if you have an Aleph, you replace it with a tough If you have a tough, you replace it with an aleph. Now, the word bash, at bash, the B sound is for the bet, which is the second letter, and then the shin sound, which is the second to last letter. And again, in at bash, in this system, every time you have a base, second letter, you swap it and replace it with a shin. And if you have a shin, you swap it and replace it with a base. So that's how this works. You would swap the first with the last, the second with the second to last, and so on. The third, which is a gimbal, you would swap with the third to last, which is the raish, and so on. Now, what's the insight behind this system? The insight is, is that there's always an inverse, a mirror image of what you're talking about. There's a word, and then there's the At-Bash version of that word. There's the opposite almost like the – the the everything which is from the first 11 is swapped for its counterpart in the last 11. Everything has the opposite of it. Everything has the counter, the exact mirror image of that thing. This is an idea we talk about a lot. There's always a balance. There's always an equilibrium. If there's a Moses, there has to be an inverse mirror image anti-Moses or else that would disrupt the equilibrium. Everything has an inverse, an opposite version of that. And that would be the at version of that thing. And therefore, if you have something which is good, it can potentially also be bad. Why? Because there is, again, the inverse, the opposite, the mirror image, the at version of every good thing as well. And here is the kicker. Here's the kicker. It's 40-something minutes into the podcast. There's no one here in shul yet. It's still just us. Here is the kicker. The Hebrew word for charity is tzedakah. Tzedakah is spelled with four letters. A tzaddik, a dalet, a kuf, and a hey. What is the inverse of tzedakah? What is the at-bash version of tzedakah? You could do it on your own. Or you could trust me, the answer is tzedakah! Why? The tzaddik swaps with a hay, and the hay swaps with a tzaddik. And the kuf swaps with the dalid, and the dalad swaps with the kuf. So you write the word staka, and then you want to say, "Give me the ad bash version of this." It ends up with staka as well. There's a deep insight in this. There is no bad version of staka, provided that the staka is legitimate staka. You're not giving a charitable donation to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Provided that it is legitimate staka, there is no way to spin that into a bad thing. And therefore, with every mitzvah, we're not allowed to test God. Why not? God makes a promise, let him deliver. Well, here's the answer. Because we don't know, when we do a mitzvah, there is also an at version of that mitzvah. There's a way to do the same thing, but to do it in the opposite fashion To do it maybe for ulterior motives, we want honor, we have bad character, we're motivated by all kinds of other things. This is not a refined mitzvah, it's the opposite. And we're under the impression that we did the mitzvah perfectly. But because every mitzvah has a version of that, the Yatbash version of that thing, that is flawed, we can never be sure that the mitzvah that we did was pristine. Maybe we did the opposite of that, and therefore we did not get the expected reward. So we can't test God, because we'll test God and he'll fail, and we will ascribe that failure to him, when in truth it's our fault because we did the At-Bash version of that mitzvah. But there's one exception. With tzedakah, again, provided it's done properly, and done with the requisite volume of tithing, we can know for sure that it is good. There is no Atbash version of that. There's no opposite version of that. And therefore, there is no version of staka that does not yield the blessing. And therefore, here and here alone we can test God. What a beautiful idea. Now, the next layer of questioning that you would ask is: okay, well, why? Why is there, so to speak, an Atbash version of every mitzvah? but not by tzedakah. That's the next level. But this is our takeaway. Tzedakah is tzedakah, is tzedakah. Charity is charity is charity. When done properly, we can test God, because we know for sure we did the right version of that. The benefits were accrued to the needy, and therefore, the Almighty's promise is testable. Now, I want to make an addendum What do you do when you see people who are tithing, yet they don't become rich? They tested God, and apparently it didn't work. Here's the answer. There's a few answers. The Talmud in the book of Shabbos, page 62b, lists three things that make a person poor. Meaning, It's possible for someone to tithe and get rich because of the tithing, but they'll get poor because of something else. Talmud lists three things in the book of Shabbos, page 62B, take a look at it, that made a person poor. Moreover, if someone steals money, it's not kosher money as we say, and then they give 10% with that money, it's not their mitzvah because it wasn't their money, so that would not incur the blessing, the promise of you becoming wealthy for giving 10%. In addition, it's possible that someone gave tzedakah, gave 10%, would have become rich, but there was also something else on their plate, namely that they were supposed to die. There was a decree upon them that they're supposed to die. And the Talmud tells us that a poor person is equal to a dead person. On a certain level, if someone is poor, bereft of resources, it is the equivalent on a certain level of them being dead. And therefore the Almighty in His benevolence and kindness said, instead of killing this guy, instead of whacking him, instead of making him actually die, I will allow him to have the benefit of only material death and thereby avoiding Actual physical death. And finally, the fourth category of people who would lose their money despite tithing is someone who commits infidelity. If someone commits infidelity, they will lose their money. That potentially is a reason for them to lose their money. So there we go. With the exception of that, we have a promise. You tithe, you give your 10% and you will become rich. My personal way of doing this is I have a spreadsheet, like a, like an Excel sheet and all my charity and all my donations are all placed on that. And then every December, I reconcile it, make sure that it amounts to at least 10% of that year's income. So if you want a donation from me, probably the best time to come is in December where I try to make sure that the numbers are equal. I say that because I don't think it has any glory in it. You tithe, you become rich. I want to become rich. And that's why I tithe. Make sure you reconcile it on an annual basis. That's the podcast. I thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Send me an email, rabbiwalbidgimon.com. Have an amazing rest of your day. A fabulous and splendid rest of your week. And an incredible and peaceful and delightful And wonderful Shabbos upcoming. And please, with the help of the Almighty, we'll talk again next week.